Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Neo Shabin. This audio series is true crime horror stories that happen to real people. Things that we just can't explain. I always say the creepiest crimes happen in small towns. Maybe it's because it's so many hidden secrets. Who knows? Before we start, we just want to give a very big shout out to our sponsors, Gore Culture, your first stop for all horror-related content, preferred source for latest thrillers, sci-fi, horror films, news, and more. And also, big shout out to MVB Films Productions for giving us a platform. It's evil. Real Alabama cases. Alabama Snake Handling Church. Summerford pastored the Church of Jesus with signs following in Scottsboro on October 4th, 1991. His wife, Darlene Summerford, was bitten twice on the hand by a rattlesnake or snake. After her husband forced her to stick her hand inside a cage of snakes, he accused her falsely, she said, of running around on him with another preacher. Summerford, then 47, was charged with attempted murder and convicted in February 1992. Took a pipe and hit the cages real hard so the snakes got mad and grabbed me by the hair and said he would push my face in there if I didn't stick my hand in, according to the Associate Press. He said I had to die because he wanted to marry another woman. She got Glenn so drunk he passed out and went out to the shed to get a snake put on him, but it bit her instead. But a prosecution witness said the woman had stayed at the preacher's house several nights. Jurors believe that the pastor's wife, Summerford, is serving 99-year sentence and a 30-year sentence for second-degree escape after he slipped away from a work detail in February 2003. He was found about 45 minutes of freedom. He was denied parole in June and his minimum release date of February 4, 2021. Summerford, pastor of the Church of Jesus with signs following in Scottsboro, believed that snakes, rattlesnakes, was the way to Christ. One of Alabama's strangest crime stories was set in motion 29 years in Scottsboro, where a Pentecostal preacher wife told police her husband tried to kill her using the snake he employed in his church services. The story of Glenn Summerford, convicted on an attempted murder charge and serving a 99-year prison sentence, is the subject of Alabama's snake. What do you think? Do you think Summerford heard from God or the devil? Story number two, to live and die in Alabama. It was late afternoon on March 5th, 2020, the overcast day chosen by the state of Alabama to be Mr. Wood's last. He had been convicted 15 years earlier in connection with of three Birmingham police officers and ever since had been rechristened cop killer Nathaniel Woods. But Mr. Woods never killed anyone. He was unarmed when the officers were gunned down while rushing into a cramped drug house to execute a warrant for his arrest on a misdemeanor. Alabama, one of 26 states where an accomplice can be sentenced to death, according to the American Civil Liberties, argued that Mr. Woods had intentionally lured the officers to their deaths. It did not have to prove that he actually killed anyone in seeking his conviction for capital murder. The Death Penalty Information Center estimates that of the country's 1,458 executions between 1985 and 2018, 11 involved cases in which the defendant neither arranged nor committed murder 
Even rarer are cases in which the person was unarmed, uninvolved in a violent act, such as robbery. Cases like that of Mr. Woods, whose defenders say he had no foreknowledge of violence to unfold and fled in terror as the bullets flew. Another death row inmate, Carrie Spencer, wrote in a letter in support of Mr. Woods, I know this to be a fact because I'm the man that shot and killed all three of the officers. But only two of the dozen jurors hearing his case were black. The judges and the two prosecutors were white and were the three victims. He was also a black man living in Alabama, a state with a history of racial injustice and full embrace of capital punishment. It has been the country highest number of death row inmates per capital and is the only state that does not require jury immunity in recommending death. After brief deliberation, the jurors had voted 10 to 2. Death. In the annuals of capital punishment, Mr. Woods is not the most sympathetic figure, a drug dealer whose invasive actions led to three deaths. Just as jurors struggle with reading Mr. Woods' impassive facial expression, so too does the law struggle with measure of punishment. How could it be that an armed man who killed three officers continue to live while the unarmed man who fled dies? The tragedy is that people like Nathaniel Woods become victims of our indifference to justice, said Brian Stevenson, the executive director of Equal Justice Initiative, a human rights organization based in Alabama. He added, being in the wrong place at the wrong time does not make you someone who is evil. Dark bearded, but still boyish, his light frame dressed in his death row whites, the condemned man looked back at his family, then disappeared behind a door held open just for him. The path to 18th Street. On a hot afternoon, getting hotter by the second, all that separated the hostility between Nathaniel Woods' drug dealing and Carlos Owens was a back screen door. Their standoff on June 17, 2004, was unfolding at a one-story bare-bone apartment in the city Inslin section, surrounding empty lots and the vacant storefronts told the familiar American story of steel and prosperity moving out and drugs and crime moving in. Mr. Woods was a clerk in a 24-hour drug operation run by his cousin, Tyran Cooper, who went by Bubba. His job, collect the money and hand over the drugs. A good dude, Mr. Cooper said. Mr. Woods spent his early childhood in Tuscaloosa, nursing stray animals and teasing his younger sister. Mr. Woods left school after the sixth grade and eventually moved to Birmingham to live with his father, Nathaniel Woods, Sr., he got a job driving a forklift at Piggly Wiggly's warehouse where his father was a foreman, but it didn't stick. Now he was 28 with three young children on a job selling drugs in an operation taking in 3,000 a day. His partner and friend, Carrie Spencer, 23, had followed a similar path. He too had left school and worked at Piggly Wiggly warehouse and had young children, but he also snorted $350 worth of cocaine a day and was usually armed. Mr. Spencer and Mr. Woods later claimed that Officer Owens first appeared in the apartment around dawn, pulling up his truck to the building. Police record indicates that he reported to work at 6.30 that morning. They said he kicked out the door demanding to talk to Bubba before finally leaving, but this account could not be verified. Another witness later testified that neither Mr. Wood or Mr. Spencer was at the apartment earlier that morning, though she said someone later told her that Officer Owens had indeed stopped by. There is no question that Officer Owen arrived at the apartment around 10.30 that morning and that they got into a heated argument with Mr. Woods and Mr. Spencer. At some point, Officer Owen briefly removed his badge 
Less than three hours later, the police received confirmation by the phone that Mr. Woods was wanted in a nearby Fairfield on a misdemeanor assault charge related to a four-month-old domestic disturbance. This time, four police officers pulled up in the 18th Street apartment, Mr. Owens, Mr. Collins, Mr. Chisholm, and Charles Robert Bennett. Now, Officers Owens was at the back door again telling Mr. Wood through the screen that there are an outstanding warrant for his arrest and to come outside. Mr. Woods refused. Some of what happened next is a dispute. Whether the police used pepper spray, whether the police drew their guns, but there is a doubt of sudden explosion of violence that followed by Mr. Spencer in a cell phone video recorded from death row last year. He said that he woke up to commotion, looked out the window to see a police car, and then saw Mr. Woods stumbling out of the kitchen, holding his face as if it's in pain, perhaps from pepper spray, then seeing movement, he opened fire with his semi-automatic, killing Officer Chisholm and Owens. One bullet nicked Officer Collins as he fled out of the back door. I was shocked, Mr. Woods later told the police, and I was hollering, telling him to stop, stop, stop. Mr. Woods scrambled to the bathroom window and started to flee, passing Officer Bennett lying on the ground. He said, oh, I've been hit, Mr. Woods told the police, but he kept running. Mr. Spencer said he went to the back door, sprayed a parole car with bullets to scare Officer Collins. He ran out the front door. He sensed that the gravel-wooded Officer Bennett was trying to grab his leg. He shot him in the head. An anxious but determined manhunt followed, with crouched officers searching alleys and houses with guns drawn. Mr. Woods watched the activity while sitting on a porch diagonally across from the apartment, as if the drama had nothing to do with him. He surrendered when identified, convinced that he would be fine because he hadn't killed anyone. I won't shoot no police officer, he would say while being interrogated later that day. Ain't do nothing like that. That ain't me. Judge Tommy Nile of Jefferson County Circus Court said, may God have mercy on your soul. A month later, in October 2005, Mr. Woods stood trial on the same capital murder charges for which Mr. Spencer had just been convicted. Most people think that you only get death penalty for murders that you are responsible for in the sense that you committed the killing or you paid someone to commit the killing, said Robert Dumman, the executive director of Death Penalty Information Center. But he said that Supreme Court permitted a person to be sentenced to death if you had a reckless disregard for the life of the victim and were a major participant in the underlying felony. Still, Mr. Wood's lawyers had confidence in their case. He never fired a shot. He didn't have a gun. And even the shooter, Mr. Spencer, and Mr. Woods had nothing to do with the killing. True, Mr. Woods had been talking trash about the police and had challenged Officer Owens to fight. Makes him guilty of stupidity for saying that? Does not make him guilty for capital murder. But prosecutors challenged the premise that the shooting was unplanned by portraying Mr. Woods as a police-hating criminal who had purposefully led the officers to their death in the tight apartment. They wanted them trapped, a prosecutor said. Mr. Woods was the bait, she said. Carrie Spencer was the hook. Our system is not for everyone. Story number three, Kelly Henderson Howard. Rumors abound over the fate of a missing Riverside woman. Kelly Henderson Howard, 41, of Pell City, disappeared from her place of work over a month ago, and still her whereabouts are unknown. 
Riverside Police confirmed they have a person or persons of interest in connections with Howard's disappearance. Riverside Police reported that Howard was last seen leaving work around 1 p.m. on June 2nd. Ms. Howard worked as a dental hygienist at Family Dentistry in Riverside for the past six years. On the day of her disappearance, Ms. Howard's car was found in the dental clinic parking lot on Highway 78, but her personal belongings were missing. According to law enforcement, Ms. Howard credit cards, ATM cards, and cell phones have not been used since her June disappearance. Several people inside the investigation have expressed concern that the absence of the activity on her cards or phone are bad omens in a missing persons case. The dental office at which Ms. Howard was employed, owned by Dr. Rick Mitchell, remained unopened from the day after Ms. Howard's disappearance until June 29th. The Mitchells, as of publication, did not return repeated calls and voicemails. And on July 1st, the dental office closed again. Riverside City Council member Rachel Painter, a patient of family dentistry in Riverside, said that she and her family visited the Mitchell's dentistry office on Monday, June 29th, and that they were treated with friendly and professional service. They are the best people, said Painter. Rick, Angela, Miss Michelle, and Kelly. Painter says that she has heard all the rumors surrounding the case, but remains hopeful that Kelly will return home to her family. I want to believe the best in people, and I'm praying that Kelly will come home to her family said Painter. The family deserves closure. Riverside Mayor Rusty Jessup said the town's leader are still hoping and praying for Kelly Howard and her family. This is a situation that has our whole town very, very concerned, said Jessup. Jessup also went on to say he wanted to thank Sheriff Terry Searles and St. Clair Sheriff Office for their help with the investigation. We're asking everyone to be patient progress is being made in the case. Although it may not look like it, very positive progress is being made, said Jessup. Riverside Police Chief Rick Oliver said that they have some strong leads and are following them vigorously. He also asked the public, call his office with any public information concerning Ms. Howard's disappearance. Ms. Howard is originally from Anniston, Oxford area. She graduated from Wellburn High School. Kelly Howard was reported missing by her husband, Boyd Howard, June 2nd. Well, we have a bonus episode, really short story about an Alabama boy, frightens residents dressed up like a horror movie killer. Kendrick Wallen was on her way home from remodeling a house recently when she saw something that made her think she was hallucinating. Driving through Pinston, Alabama, the 31-year-old and her employees saw what happened to be a real-life Chucky doll from Child's Play walking down the street. When we got closer to him, we saw that he was real. It scared the heck out of us, Walden told today, adding that everyone in the car was screaming like little kids. The driver, Alexa Ashley, looped back around so everyone could get a closer look and snapped some pictures of the murderous doll on a casual stroll. Walden shared photos of the strange sighting on Facebook shortly after. Dear parents of little boy in the Chucky costume in Pinston, get your kid. I almost had a heart attack. She captured the now viral post of the boy in the Chucky suit.
It turns out this Chucky was not a possessed toy, but a five-year-old Pinson boy named Jackson. His mom, Brittany Reed, told WDHN, said her son was Chucky for Halloween and occasionally wears the costume around the neighborhood. That's just kind of how his personality is, she explained. He dresses up in different costumes throughout the week. He loves to make people laugh. Reed's mother was babysitting Jackson when Walden snapped photos of him creeping up the neighborhood. Grandma helped the youngest get into costume and sat on the porch and watched him do his thing. Jackson told WDHN that he's happy so many people have seen his costume. Tell them I was a good Chucky, he said, and make sure you send my grandma a copy of the pictures too. When movies meet reality, is this funny or plain scary? You be the judge. We'll see you next time on It's Evil, Real Alabama Cases. Stay safe.